Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 43 on February 25th, 2022. Coming to you at the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we'll talk about the movie Don't Look Up and why we shouldn't worry about climate change. We'll also have our institute updates. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, subscribe to us on YouTube, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both our podcasts as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. Also, some podcast distributors are putting ads on our podcasts. Unless you hear me doing the ad, someone else is making money on that advertising. Please consider supporting us by underwriting a podcast. Find out more at our website, lowtechinstitute.com about support. And thanks. This episode of the Low Tech Podcast brought to you by Snowstorm. Do you need your wife to stay home and watch the kids one morning so you can record a podcast? And you need Snowstorm, available seasonally across the northern half of the United States. If you're in the south, check out our sister product, Ice Storm. Now on to the show. And thanks again to our sponsor, Snowstorm. We recently watched the Netflix film Don't Look Up. And it's hard to give the premise of this movie without spoiling it, so be warned at the top that I'm going to discuss any part of the movie I want, and if you want to watch it first, stop now and go do that, Uh, otherwise you might hear plot points that you otherwise wouldn't want to hear. So the movie is about a planet-killing asteroid headed towards Earth, which everyone ignores until it's too late. That's it. That's the entire movie. And really it's just that premise on repeat over and over and over ad nauseum. Um, Well, okay, that's a little unfair. It really isn't ad nauseum. I never got bored with it. It was funny. But it was fairly repetitive and kind of easy to guess what's coming next. But in the movie, astronomers, uh, played by Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, try and tell the world about a large asteroid headed towards the planet in six months. They first tell the president, of course, who laughs it off and wants to make it help her political timeline with the midterms coming up. The media is more interested in celebrity than facts. The tension builds as it becomes clear that the comet is coming. And then private industry, represented in some kind of odd cross between Apple and Facebook, represented by this Steve Jobsy type guru person, convinces the president to allow them to mine the rare earth metals on the asteroid instead of deflecting it. And we can all see the obvious end to this dark comedy coming. Literally, you can see the end coming because the asteroid is about to hit the earth. So the popular culture and media attention about this film focuses on its parallels to climate change, right? And this is obvious and clear. Adam McKay, the director, has the same point the entire way through. It's, it's very clear. It's, it's not very subtle. They kept throwing up phrases that we often hearing about climate change, like there's serious debate about the facts, or they want you to be afraid, things like that, which kind of a joke when it comes to climate change. The the willful ignorance or dismissal uh, of the coming asteroid or climate change by politicians, the media, and the powerful is made absurd in this movie. They do a good job. The president, played by Meryl Streep, is uh, hilariously self-absorbed, or tragically self-absorbed if it were in real life, and 
Uh, obviously just thinks about the political ramifications of this and doesn't, uh, by the end, turns into almost this populist-type figure with cheering crowds, chanting, don't look up, don't look up, because um, they don't want people to see the coming um, asteroid. The uh, media, primarily represented by Kate Blanchett, who is kind of one of these um, morning hosts, like Hoda Kotb or other other type of you know a, a attractive, light-hearted uh, morning show host, um, falls in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. Let's rephrase that maybe not falls has an affair with Leonardo DiCaprio but the entire time is just interested in the uh, the celebrity of it all rather than the incoming uh, planet killing asteroid there's also the the Washington Post uh, which uh, originally publishes uh, the story about this coming asteroid and then they have to kind of renege and water down what they say because uh, there's controversy about it which you know happens with uh, with climate change people aren't concerned about it and I know that in real life, um, we are not really concerned about climate change because we would be seeing changes on a massive palpable scale. Your life would already be different if we were taking climate change seriously. And the fact that we're not, it's kind of a result of all these things that gets brought up in the movie. Then the powerful, uh, played here by Bash, which is again that, that cross between Apple and Facebook sort of thing. It's an all-encompassing media and technology platform. If there's not profit in it for them then no solution is seen as credible. The original idea, of course, is to send up nuclear weapons and explode them near the asteroid to deflect it off to, uh, out of Earth's orbit. Um, and then uh, that is poo-pooed by this uh, guru-type tech leader who says, why don't we mine it instead? And they send up uh, drones to do that. And so it's a very non-subtle satire or commentary, right? It's not a, it doesn't dawn on you halfway through, oh, they're talking about climate change. It's obvious from the beginning. It's still funny. Uh, it's still enjoyable, uh, but it's still not very subtle. Um, it doesn't kind of uh, sneak an idea into your head and then turn on the light bulb to show you, oh, you actually think differently about this than you otherwise would, which is the strength of satire usually. So I'm a little disappointed that it was basically just a movie for the choir, by the choir, singing to the choir. Uh, those who enjoy it already take climate change seriously, and those who don't won't watch it. So there is room out there for some sort of movie that, that does uh, change people's minds. This isn't it. Uh, still enjoyed it. At the outset, I said we shouldn't worry about climate change, which sounds kind of absurd coming from an organization like ours um, and someone like me, because I have a really good understanding of climate science for a non-climate scientist. In undergrad, I took a lot of earth sciences classes. In graduate school, I had to learn how to understand the paleoclimate record. Um, I have a PhD in archaeology, and a big deal for us as archaeologists is understanding what the climate was of the people we're studying. Were there droughts? Was it hot? Was it cold? Was it wet? These are really important to human societies then and now. And when large societies come to depend on a certain climatic regime and then it changes over time due to human or natural changes, that can have a big effect on that society. And we're going to see that for ourselves coming up. Uh, and I mean us in real life in a hundred years, things are going to be very different in terms of climate, faster than we've ever seen changes before. For a few numbers here, um, the current atmospheric carbon is about 420 parts per million. When I was born uh, in 1983, it was 340 parts per million. So it's gone up 80 parts per million in my lifetime. For uh, just a point of comparison, during an ice age, we usually see about 200 parts per million carbon. And the previous high part per million count 
in history that we know of going back about a million years is 300 parts per million. So let's be really clear about that. In the last million years or so, the carbon dioxide levels have never been higher than 300 parts per million. And we're already over 400 and rising. That's why this is so concerning. This isn't really debatable, okay? Um, because we, we can count these parts per million really easily in ice cores. Now, really briefly, and not to get too deep into this, we understand the previous climates through what are called proxies. These are kind of like records left in the Earth that tell us how hot or cold something is, uh, or how hot or cold the global temperature was um, by the different isotopes contained in small marine creatures that get embedded in the seafloor, and then over time we can create a, an approximate temperature record. I'm not going to get into it, but it's very, it's very simple. And then with the ice cores, if you think about snow, right? Snow falls and there's air kind of trapped within the, the snow. And then when that gets compacted, there are little bubbles of air that get compacted. And so if you think about Antarctica, there are little bubbles of air from uh, about 800,000 years ago, it goes back. Uh, and so when we take a giant core, which is just a big cylinder of ice out of uh, the Antarctic ice sheet, we can actually um, extract the air that is 800,000, 700,000, 600,000, etc. years old, put that into a mass spectrometer, and it'll tell us how much carbon is in it. So we can exactly measure the atmosphere from many, many years in the past. So we know that when the carbon goes up, the temperature goes up. When the carbon goes down, the temperature goes down. There are other factors, like um, when a volcano erupts and um, sends ash in the atmosphere, it bounces more sun off and creates cooling. That's totally normal too, and we can actually see that in the ice cores because the ash falls on the snow and gets incorporated into the ice cores. But one of the biggest driving factors is the amount of carbon. So again, we're at 420 parts per million. The highest we've ever seen in the historic or the prehistoric record is 300 parts per million. We're in uncharted territory, and it's still going up pretty precipitously. All right, so that's all to say I have a pretty decent understanding of this. Um, I read the IPCC reports, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change from the UN. Um, I understand what's, what they say is going to happen. I understand we're going to see a couple degrees of warming in the next 50 to 100 years. And so why would I say let's not worry about it? Well, to be completely honest, part of it's for clickbait. So thanks for listening. Haha. -ha. But really, the reason I say that we shouldn't worry about it is because we can't. Humans are really bad at thinking about the future in a real concrete way. We're better than most animals. That's totally true. We are better. We have giant brains compared to our body size. Our acephalization quotient, which measures your body versus your brain, is very high. We're very smart. I'm not putting us down. I am a little bit, but compared to other animals, we're very smart. But one thing that we have not evolved in our thinking is how to think long term. We can think about next week. We can think about next year. But we are really bad at thinking about things that are going to happen next decade or 100 years from now. That's why we have such trouble quitting smoking. The small amount of pleasure we get now from smoking is offset by the suffering that we see at the end of our lives through dying of cancer. But we have trouble quitting smoking because that small amount of pleasure is more important than the larger suffering we're going to have later. Same thing with eating right, exercising, so on. All these things that we are really bad at thinking about things that are very far in the future, and then putting off pleasure now um, to avoid uh, pain later, we're, we're just terrible at it. So if I tell you 
in 50 years, the temperature is going to be two degrees warmer. Are you going to give up everything you have today? No, you're not because we can't. We, we just, people aren't just capable of that. It takes quite a lot to get to the point where you're willing to abdicate all of the little pleasures we have today for something that's going to happen in 50 years and to our grandkids and not us. So that's why I say it's hard for us to worry about climate change. And so pushing people to say, give up fossil fuels today for uh, mitigating climate crisis is not really the world's best message because it's just not, doesn't fit into how humans think about the future. So, you know, I know the IPC says that we're going to see hotter, drier, greater effects in polar regions. We're going to have rising sea levels. Plant and animal um, are going to migrate uh, to new uh, climate regimes, uh, new places where the climate is good for them, or they're going to adapt or they're going to die. Humans are going to have to migrate. Resource shifts are going to cause strife and hunger and even conflict among people and, and animals. And so even with years of reading about the paleoclimate, how it changes, how it affects the societies that we're living. I have, even me, I have trouble getting worked up about a few degrees of, of warmer temperature. I know in my, in my very analytical part of my, my brain that it's going to be an issue, but I just can't get uh, emotionally excited about it because it just sounds so innocuous. Two degrees in 50 years sounds like nothing. Uh, now, trust me, I am very concerned about the future and that future is tied to climate change and that concern is tied to climate change. But really telling people to give up things today that they like so that people in 2050 or 2021 can have a better chance of survival, it's just not going to work. I really wish it would. And there's a lot, and I don't mean to denigrate, there's lots of great people doing excellent work out there who are changing their lives and trying to change the lives of others with this future in mind, but it's not enough of us to make a big difference. Emissions are not coming down fast enough. Energy use is continuing to rise. If we are going to see the changes we need, we'd already be doing them. Our lives would already be drastically different if we were making the changes we need as a global society to stem the tide. It's too late. These changes are going to happen. And that's why I'm saying don't worry about it, climate change. Whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. So don't worry about it. Be proactive. Think about it this way. If you're in a plane caught in a hurricane, you could scream the whole way down or you can enjoy the ride. Either way, you're dead. But one way, at least, you weren't worried. And that's a little morbid, but we're talking about large systemic failure of ecosystems and social systems. So it is kind of a, a plane caught in a hurricane. This doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. Of course not. Of course we should be doing something. And if you've ever heard me talk um, at, uh, at any public event, I tie everything to our society's Achilles heel, and that's fossil fuels. If we make the changes today to stop using fossil fuels before they run out in a quarter century, we'll go a long way to addressing the climate crisis. If we're going to run out of easily available fossil fuels in a quarter century, which most of you listening to this podcast will live to see, Unlike a few degrees of warming, which is hard to understand, think about what will happen when we can't use fossil fuels. I'm serious. Hit pause. Think about it. How different will your life be in 25 years if we can't use fossil fuels? We can't just electrify everything. If you think about it, let's see, I wake up. My house is warm because it's been burning fossil fuels in the furnace to stay warm. My alarm, alarm clock run by electricity, which is in Wisconsin, a lot of fossil fuels being burned to generate that. Um, I get up, I make myself some tea using electricity. There we go, hot fossil fuels. 
my um, water is pumped using electricity, fossil fuels. Uh, I run my stove right now, it's a LP stove. There you go, uh, fossil fuels right there. Um, the food that I cook. If I buy it at the grocery store, it wouldn't have been there without fossil fuels. Driving to work. Uh, I don't have a Tesla, I can't afford an all-electric vehicle, and even if I did, unless I completely powered it by solar panels, it's built on fossil fuels. The factory that built it runs on fossil fuels. It's, there's fossil fuels in everything we do. Heating and cooling at work, our lunch, driving home, everything we do is completely tied to fossil fuels. There's no getting away from them in our current typical life. So whether or not climate change is going to affect that in 50 to 100 years is one thing, but we have an impending fossil fuel crisis. We are going to run out of ready and easily accessible oil in 25 years. We currently have about 47 years worth of oil that we know about in the ground at current use, but we're not going to get all that out. It's going to become prohibitively expensive to get the last half of that out. So I say, you know, plan for 25 years. And the sooner you change over, the less expensive it's going to be for you in time and effort later. So thinking about the changes we need to make to avert the climate crisis or to slow the climate crisis are the same changes we need to do to stop using fossil fuels. And by telling people fossil fuels are going to run out and getting them to change their lives because it's a more impending and more palpable thing, we understand our use of fossil fuels. We know, even if it's just thinking about them when we fill up at the tank, that's something in our daily lives, whereas two degrees warming, well, that doesn't sound like anything. You know, the difference between 90 degrees and 92 degrees on a hot sunny day doesn't seem like much of a difference, but not having fossil fuels is. So that's why I'm saying, don't worry about climate change. Worry about the coming end of fossil fuels, because that will help mitigate the effects of climate change, and it will also help us mitigate the very real end of fossil fuels in the foreseeable future. And to that end, we're kind of refocusing what we're doing at the Institute. It used to be the number one question that I would get whenever I was tabling at an event with the public was, what do you do, really, you I see? Research on bees and classes on maple syruping and um, you know, uh, photovoltaics and uh, solar hot water and timber framing. What the heck do you guys do? But now I feel like I've been able to come up with a much clearer answer when I start by talking about fossil fuels. And I know it sounds repetitive, but basically my new and very clear answer, which I think has been pretty satisfactory the last few times I've tabled, is that we understand that fossil fuels won't be available in a quarter century, so we need to transition how we live now while it's easy to plan for the future. And to do that, we offer research and classes on skills we'll need for that future. Everything we do is DIY, small-scale solutions, because Americans, I've come to realize, are kind of self-selected for individualists, if you think about it, right? Who came to America? risk takers, um, people who weren't about to inherit a whole bunch of their parents' estate, or um, you know, people who were cast out. So we are individualists. We, we come from a long line of individualists who came to America. So our ideas are specifically aimed at households and communities because people are better at making investments that they get a direct palpable benefit from. If I were to say, hey, we should all 
uh, chip in hundreds of dollars of tax every year to electrify our train system in the U.S., Americans would say no, by and large. If I were to say, hey, we should each chip in a couple hundred dollars and make a community biodigester, and then you get free uh, cooking methane, and you don't have to buy natural gas or propane anymore, there would be a lot more people who would adopt that, because they're going to get that direct benefit. And that's why we really focus on small-scale DIY sorts of projects that you can do for your house or community. We're adding a new page to our website, which we're currently working on. So if you go to it right now, um, it's going to have the basics down there and it will expand uh, over the next couple months. But that's lowtechinstitute.org slash transition. And this will have a roadmap for transitioning our lives to a more locally interdependent future. I used to say self-sufficient. And I was recently having a conversation um, over email with someone I met at the, uh, at the Garden Expo um, a guy named Bill who runs the Sciola Foundation, um, and he was saying that he realized that he can't be self-sufficient because everything he does depends on the, the his locality, the things around him. He hasn't been to the grocery store since 2020. You'll probably hear him on a future podcast because I'm going to interview him about his experience not going to the grocery store for, for two years. And uh, basically he became very dependent on those around him um, to get milk and and other food and goods. So I'm saying we need to become more locally interdependent, depend on one another in our localities where we are. And it's a, and this roadmap is really a challenge for you to think about how you'd survive over different lengths of time without fossil fuels, which incidentally shields you from other natural and human-caused disasters. So if you were in Texas last year, but you had already planned for a week of self-sufficiency or or local sufficiency, then you would have weathered that Texas storm much better than someone who didn't. So, could you go for a week without outside power? Or a month? A year? Could you go forever? We have suggestions for each of these periods, and we cover, in descending order of importance, water, food, clothing, shelter, energy, waste, and community building. The goal of this is not prepping. The, the week and month scenarios are along the same lines as some of those prepping websites or prepping ideas or TV shows you see, just because humans have, you know, physiology where we need to eat and drink and not be frozen to death. So yeah, the, you might think that, but the goal is different. We're proactively moving to get ourselves and our communities transitioning to a new future now. We're not just hunkering down and waiting for some apocalypse. It's not the mere survival of our family in some dystopian future. It's about creating something that borrows from the pre-industrial world and combines that with our great strides forwards in areas like germ theory, chemistry, and communication to make a future that isn't just a collapse back into the past. After the dissolution of the Roman Empire, Europe entered what were called the Dark Ages, which for many were seen as a terrible time to be alive. But... There's new research and thought out there that the time shows actually thriving communities with localized economies. It's just that the elites and those at the top saw it as worse because the top level of society didn't have it as nice as they had had before. Don't get me wrong, they didn't have germ theory, there was still a short um, lifespan, things like that. So it wasn't great, but it wasn't as bad as people think. And we could enter a new age that... Some maybe in the future would think of being a dark age when we have some sort of collapse of our global system, but it will be new, local, and maybe vibrant if we plan ahead and make it something that's worth living. We don't have to have a Mad Max future if we think about giving up fossil fuels voluntarily in the next decades and move proactively towards a a different and better future. Americans don't like to be told what to do 
and we have trouble sometimes understanding the benefits of collective action on a national scale, which I get. It's hard to understand how my small role uh, has anything to do with what happens on the, on the national level. So we need this to be local, and it starts with just you sitting down and thinking about what changes you need to make to live in a future without fossil fuels. Watching the movie Don't Look Up didn't just scream climate crisis denial to me. Everybody knows that this is an issue, even if they won't admit it. The movie is really just a good an allegory of the hundred million barrels a day oil habit we have now. That's what people are really trying to avoid when they don't look up. So go ahead, look up, see the meteor coming our way in a quarter century, and get out of the way. Everything else will fall into place. have a quick brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. Winter is actually a pretty quiet time for us, but we are busy. Uh, we're planning for the coming years. We're going to have classes on spinning wool, uh, turning flax into linen, harvesting and processing wheat and rye by hand, and much more. We'll also have, I hope, member events every quarter. Uh, so I hope in this later winter quarter we're going to have a hike out to a spring where there's a tons and tons of uh, watercress. I'm getting the water tested right now and members will be invited to join us for free for that event. So if you're not a member, head on over to lowtechinstitute.org slash about slash support to find out about being a member. Uh, you can also head over to lowtechinstitute.org slash events to find out uh, what events we have coming up, although I have to update that page. Uh, you can also sign up at the bottom of any of our website pages. You can sign up for our listserv, and our listserv is where we announce classes when they are ready for registration. I should note that also that members get advanced registration and a discount, so really behooves you all to become members. We're also getting closer to putting out our 10-mile building challenge, which I've kind of teased on our last podcast, but you'll just have to wait for another podcast or two unless you follow our blog. Sign up at the bottom of our homepage to get our blog in your inbox. We'll also be continuing our beekeeping research, our compost research, and others, so watch this space and blog for more on that. Coming soon. We also just finished the Wisconsin Garden Expo, where we gave talks on potatoes as a staple food for future survival, our one-year growing all-our-own-food, and vermicompost. You can find out, you can find last year's talks on many of these same topics on our YouTube page, or you can stay tuned as I'll be turning at least two of them into podcasts here shortly. That's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room, and at the request of one of our listeners, we had a little more upbeat music this week. That music was Coffee Shop, off the album Sweet and Joyful by Croander. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Alike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and many more. If you enjoy the free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by members, grants, and underwriting. Remember, any ads you hear on this podcast not voiced by me are put there by the distributor. 
please consider supporting this podcast by underwriting an episode yourself. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly. I'm at scott at lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks and take care. And don't forget, don't look up.